I got the stone in my side I got the boogeyman child I know just what to do We gotta take back the throne We'll let the kids rock and roll I know just what to do Democracy Today, and I am your host, Stephanie Piddock. We are excited to bring you a special guest, Adam Eichmann, Eichen, sorry, and uh, he's writing a book called Daring Democracy that I'm anxious to get into it and find out what it's all about. I also have my ever-faithful partner, Chris Karras, with us tonight. Hi, Chris. How you doing? 
good. I'm glad you're here um, with us. Well, thank you. Um, do you want my two cent um, resume again? Sure. Uh, yeah. Um, so that Adam knows and every everybody else out there listening. Um, my background is uh, I've got a degree in advertising. I spent about 25, 30 years doing uh, research for advertisers and for politicians. And um, I basically on this radio show quite often play the devil's advocate <laughs> and often get yelled at for doing it. Uh, but it's, uh, it's just part of my objectivity to look at both sides. Um, and uh, I, I certainly have enjoyed a lot of these shows and, and uh and this show does does uh look to be very exciting um so with that i'll bring it back to you and and go ahead and um um introduce adam okay maybe i should give a little bit of bio of myself because maybe some people are not listening and not know who i am my name is stephanie pittock i am a recent congressional candidate in connecticut I was Green Party supporting Bernie Sanders. Um, I now uh, facilitate the International Direct Democracy Union, uh, which is an organization of uh, political parties and individuals that feel strongly about promoting direct democracy around the world and feel that this is going to be uh, the answer what humanity needs to take control back from the oligarchy and with that i will introduce our guest adam eichen hi adam hi thank you so much for having me on very happy to have you with us so if you want to give everybody a brief overview about your uh what you've been involved with and where you are today sure um so about a year and a half, two years ago, I was a uh, McGuire Fellow at Sciences Po in Paris, France, uh, studying international campaign finance. So I spent a year there studying way in, uh, different uh, countries around the world, deal with the issue of money and politics in Europe, uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, you know, as far-reaching as they come. Um, and then I actually came back from that to the United States uh, midway through my, my tenure there and, uh, you know, uh, came back for Democracy Spring, a national uh, coalition uh, that engaged in a march from Philadelphia to Washington, D.C., and then planned a uh, civil disobedience action there for seven days straight. Uh, in total, 1,400 people were arrested, um, and about a couple of days before the start of the march, I became the deputy communications director, so I helped guide all the media attention for it. Um, and then after I went back to Paris, I came back to the United States and joined the Small Planet Institute uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I'm a democracy fellow. And uh, in that capacity, I've been working with the founder of the Institute, uh, Francis Morlapay, who authored uh, the 1971 bestseller, um, Diet for a Small Planet, which really started the food justice movement. Um, and we've been working and just finished the manuscript for a book with Beacon Press called Daring Democracy, which is all about the, the roots of our democracy crisis, but perhaps more importantly, the growing movement to fight back. There is definitely a growing movement to fight back, no doubt. 
And I think a, a big component of that is recognizing direct democracy as as a um, viable solution and uh, putting the power back in the people's hands, most importantly. Mm-hmm. Is, is yeah. direct democracy what you're saying is, is daring democracy, or do you have a different um, way of looking at democracy? Well, what we're, we're we advocate, or not necessarily advocate, but what we what we're showing is kind of starting with the roots of the crisis is that um, there's been a broad-based assault on our institutions that allow us to govern, uh, specifically assault on the right to vote, one of the foundational rights of a democracy, uh, the amount of money in politics, so any sort of regulations about the amount of money uh, that uh, pervades our, our democratic system. Um, and gerrymandering, you know, rigging of districts um, and the like, and you know, it goes beyond that into media and, and the electoral college, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's a very broad-based, deliberate assault by a small group of very, very, very rich individuals. Um, and so what we offer is uh, immediate solutions to be done to begin to bring the power back in the hands of people. Um, and among those are, are, are a variety of reforms, from public financing of elections to restoration of the Voting Rights Act, um, which is one of the most egregious uh, things coming from a 2013 Supreme Court decision, Shelby County. Oh, yeah. Um, and, I, I you know, would agree with that, yeah. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's, it's egregious in that way, um, but also against, against voter ID law. Um, restoration right. of, of voting privileges for for people who have been convicted of a felony. Um, I mean, that's, exactly. that's one of the things that most people don't realize is that if you're convicted of a felony, which, mind you, is not a, necessarily a violent offense, but it could just be being arrested for a certain amount of uh, uh, marijuana, um, you, in 10 states, you lose the right to vote uh, until you die unless, you know, you're granted clemency by the governor. Um, and, you know, that's, that's both an assault on democracy and it's also a racist, racist policy because most of the people being arrested in, in the war on drugs and, and rise of mass incarceration are African Americans and, and Hispanics. Um, so, you know, we, we go into that. Um, but we also go into two other things that I think you would classify as more direct democracy from uh, certainly the national popular vote campaign, which is both common sense and uh, necessary, especially given the way our last election went, um, which I'm happy to go into more detail about how that campaign is going. Um, but also things like uh, participatory budgeting and community review boards, which are particularly important in the wake of all the police killing of uh, innocent um, men and women of color across yes. the United States. Um, yes. So again, you know, our book, we don't, we don't fail to give all the solutions. By all means, no. But what we, what we do try and advocate are concrete solutions that can begin, can begin to shift the tide of political power from, from the hands of few to the, the hands of many. Um, democracy, as I think one of our, both Francis and my favorite uh, 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 historical figures, William Hastie, who was uh, America's first federal appellate justice, uh, African-American appellate justice, uh, who said democracy is never being, it is always becoming. 
some variation of that. But basically, democracy is an iterative act. It's something that evolves. You never, it's never something that is one. It's something that is ever being. Um, and I think that's the, the approach we really take. And I think that's the approach that that um, you know, anyone who believes in direct democracy, I, 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 would, I would hope also shares that, that democracy is something that we always have to improve, improve, improve upon. Uh, because humans are ever evolving, and our institutions and technology uh, consistently improves. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And 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 inclusion. I mean, um, you know, gay rights, and uh, like you say about, um, a, you know, in Texas, you, you can use your uh, your gun registration to vote, but you can't use your college ID. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, that, um, that sort of thing just drives me nuts. Yeah, and, and that's kind of what, I'm, what we suggest by, by this, this is not something that came out of the blue. It's not just an ideology right. that, that came out of the ether of, of, of you know, the United States. It, it's a deliberate uh, decision-making uh, that, that's been enacted. I mean, it's clear. I mean, what you bring up right there is like the exact uh, proof, right? I mean, it's deliberate. There are people who have to decide what is going to be a valid form of ID and what isn't, and and the fact that people can choose that that uh, voter that the only form of a voter ID or not the only form, but one of them is gun registration, but not student ID. I mean, what does that tell you? It tells you that they don't want students either in state or people coming from out of state who primarily vote Democrat uh, voting, or people who right, are lower yeah. income. Um, yeah, they're thinking on most of those people being younger, correct, yeah. Absolutely. Um, or, you know, I mean, what, what, what essentially it is, it's a modern-day poll tax, or at least it's reminiscent of that. Uh, because even if the state issues it for free, right, sometimes they require a birth certificate, and not everyone just happens to have their birth certificate. Sometimes it gets lost when you move. Um, I mean, you know, there are many people, uh, not just irresponsible people, who might lose their birth certificate. They have it stolen. I have their Social Security stolen. And that all costs money. Right. Um, right. So, I mean, that may not seem like a lot of money. 50 bucks may not seem like a lot of money to to those of us who, who aren't going paycheck to paycheck. But for those who, who are, I mean, they can't vote. And that's that's unacceptable. It is unacceptable. Can I? Can I go back to a, a couple things? Because um, I want to. We got plenty of time. So uh, the um, the 1,100 people or what, whatever that got arrested. What what were you protesting um, uh, in order to? Uh, yeah. Well, what was it that uh, uh, you were um, protesting in order to uh, to show the world? Uh, that it was wrong that you get, so many people got arrested. All right, so we we, we had four demands, uh, but I mean the, the two biggest ones were public financing of elections and ending voter suppression, and specifically reinstating. And was this for a state or was this, was this federal? Yes, so this this is federal. So so Democracy Spring was a national. Okay. It was a coalition of both state and national uh, organizations coalescing to try and pressure Congress. Um, okay. That said, I, I'll, you know, we can definitely talk about this more, but the kind of the, you know, justice democracy is never, never won. It's always kind of in the process of being won. Um, the goal yeah. of democracy was, was certainly we were never naive enough, I think, to, to believe that we'd win right away. 
the goal was that we would inspire people to take up the torch once we were finished with that action and bring it to their respective states. Um, and already what you have, and it's been the process of being organized for, for months now, and I've been, I've been in kind of uh, helping to consult and I'm now in, I'm more involved, but what you have is the first iteration of, of Democracy Spring on a state level, which is the March on Harrisburg which is a march specifically targeted to the state legislature of, um, of Pennsylvania. And they're marching, from, yeah, and they're marching from Philly to Harrisburg, and their demands are ending gerrymandering, automatic voter registration, and a ban on gifts, um, a gift ban. Um, and so what you're finding is, is that the, those who are involved are hoping to carry the torch uh, to other kind of edgy actions moving forward. Um, so I digress, but I thought that was important to kind of. Uh, I made you digress. How do you uh, the 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 ending of gerrymandering is is that to get uh, a coalition of voters uh, of, of non-aligned people uh, to to create the uh, the districts as opposed to uh, the the state senate. Um, doing so and, and obviously making these spider web kind of uh, uh, yeah yeah well I, th- I think to be you know I certainly went down the rabbit hole of, of so what what is the answer to gerrymandering reform uh, when writing writing gerrymandering democracy but you know the the kind of the, the most standard approach and this is the approach that often I, I encountered in Europe. Uh, when I was, you know, doing research there, is uh, an independent redistricting commission. So some some sort of body of nonpartisan, either experts or you know, what, you know, any sort of composition of nonpartisan folks who will draw the lines based on a, a given formula. Um, you know, there's also a case in Iowa. Iowa is a a real, really interesting case, um, and it's unique and maybe not replicable elsewhere but they essentially have a state agency uh, draw the lines, and then the legislature votes on it. But the legislature can't edit it. It can either vote it up or down, but this state agency is the one that draws it. Um, and it's worked remarkably well. Um, you know, incredible number of competitive districts, and, um, and the, the, the people love it. And uh, Iowans love that. I mean, there's, you know, I was actually talking with the guy, one of the people who the senior counsel at the – um, in this agency, and we were just talking, and, and he was just saying that, you know, the legislature can change this at any point. It's just a simple law. It's not in the state constitution. Um, but the legislatures and the people love it. It's not controversial. Um, and I think that's the real key um, with a lot of these reforms, is that most of the stuff, these democracy reforms, are, are not controversial. It's just, it's just getting it enacted. Um, you know, is, is, is that's the tough part uh, because most people don't think about gerrymandering reform, but ultimately, as, as we saw in you know 2010, Democrats had 1.5 or 1.4 million more votes for congressional elections than Republicans, but lost the majority of seats. Um, right. right. You know, I mean, and you don't think about it, but when you really analyze it, it's just, it's, it's it's the it's the pinnacle of absurdity. Well, but that's the the scary part to me, Adam, is that, I mean, we're all told about that. I mean, even if you watch the the 23-minute 
national news as opposed to, you know, watching cable all day. They even tell you that. And but most people don't don't hear it for whatever reason. And um, and uh, to me, gerrymandering is so obvious and it, and it would it would insp- I mean, a, a district that's up for grabs would inspire so many more voters and 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 so much more uh, conversation, I think, than one that is really, you know, dead to one party. And it it's um, it it's another thing, you know, a lot of things irritate me about politics, but um, but we're we're all told that that can't it has to happen every ten years because of census and and we can't change the districts until twenty twenty and and all this stuff is is that the case? Well, I mean, here's a funny thing is that, you know, it's prescribed every 10 years after the census, but there are cases in which people, in which legislatures will, will uh, redistrict in mid-session. Uh, Texas is a notorious example. I mean, but unfortunately, this kind of redistricting is usually very devious. Uh, Texas did it to consolidate right. power. Um, right. You know. It's to help one party, yeah. But, but what I have to say is that when I talk to, to folks who are experts in this, it's not rocket science. It's very, very straightforward to draw lines that keep communities together and remain competitive. It's not that hard. There, there, you know, a lot of people ask me why, like, well, redistricting isn't that bad because Republicans and Democrats have always done it. But what and one thing we kind of exp- helped to expose, thanks to David Daly, who wrote a wonderful book. Um, I'm not going to pronounce the name on radio. It's a little inappropriate, uh, but I suggest anybody who's a former editor of Salon, and there's a reason why he chose that title. Um, yeah. But what, what, what he helped me show, you know, helped, helped, uh, you know teach me is that um, in 2010, you have to understand, as you, know, you think back to 2000, you think what kind of technology, you, know, you think dial-up internet, uh, YouTube, Twitter, you know, Facebook, none of these were a thing. So technology progresses exponentially. So too does the technology to harness map making. Um, and the story behind just how powerful these map making softwares are, in addition to the metadata that you can just buy, you know, from people's Amazon and uh, Amazon, Amazon purchases, Netflix, you know, viewership, stuff like that, you can, you can just determine who's going to vote which way. And that's not me being a conspiracy theorist. It's just that's just the reality of big data. Oh, it's available. Combine, yeah. So when you combine big data with map making technology that's you know uh, the most advanced it's ever been, um, you're you're designing districts that are, are going to be fortified. Um, but the, the converse of that, I have to say, as discouraging as that as that is, is that that means that it's it's, it's just as easy to create districts that are fair, balanced, and keep communities together and remain competitive. So as bad as things are, you know, as bad as technology has allowed things to get a certain way, they don't have to be this way. And they certainly aren't in other countries. I'm not saying other countries are perfect, but but this is not this is not something that happens in the rest of the, the rest of the world. Yeah. We have to find a I way. I mean it's just simply not logical. You know, I mean, it's logical only in the sense that the monopoly stays the monopoly. Right. You know, and the people and that's what in they're power. To preserve. Yeah. And they're doing everything they can to preserve that. But it's falling apart yeah, in their hands right now. It's falling apart. 
Yeah, I, I certainly yesterday in Kansas was a, a real wake-up call. Um, I mean, what happened in the, the special election, for anybody who doesn't know, there's a special election in Kansas in the 4th Congressional District, which, mind you, is Wichita, which is where the Koch brothers, the notorious, the Koch brothers yeah. Yeah, the notorious yeah. fossil fuel factions, perhaps the most powerful of the anti-democracy forces, where their compound is, um, and the Democrat came within six points of a seat that he had no business contesting, no business. Um, so, you know, people are fed up. They're fed up. Um, yeah, but it's still a loss. You know, I mean. Oh yeah, absolutely. At the end of the day, it's still. You know, absolutely. It, it's painful. Uh, a couple more questions, and then uh, uh, I'll I'll give it back to uh, Peppermint or uh, Stephanie. Um, how does it does does Indivisible the organization um, make any sense to to what you're doing? How do they fit into this? So actually, it's funny you say that, but that Indivisible is one of the organizations that we highlight um, in the last chapter, which is about, you know, after the whole expose of the anti-democracy crisis and, you know, solutions and the movements and all stuff, and stuff. What, what can you do now? And we were, frankly, you know, Francis and I were, were shocked at how successful Indivisible was um, at giving people tools to fight back. Um, a lot of them were intuitive, certainly. Um, but, I mean, just giving people a guideline of actions of, of what to do um, is remarkable. I mean, the, seeing kind of this, this actual grassroots, um, you know, town hall movement, which, you know, stopped the kind of inevitable demise of our, you know, albeit flawed uh, Obamacare, um, is remarkable. Exactly, yeah. I mean, remarkable. I don't think I don't think in a million years I would have ever predicted that at least in the first hundred days of Trump's presidency, with a fully held Republican Congress, they would fail to uh, repeal it. Um, and you know, a lot of people kind of say, "Well, this is the Tea Party version of the left." I I reject that. And the reason being is the Tea Party was funded by Big Mom. Contrary to popular belief, it's just not true that there was some sort of, you know, spontaneous upsurge. Yes, there was spontaneous upsurge, but it was funded by groups like FreedomWorks, um, which was a formerly Coke-owned group, um, and a lot of other money that gave kind of created what, you know, people like Jane Mayer, the, the New Yorker journalist who wrote a wonderful expose of all this stuff called Dark Money called... Uh, AstroTurf, you know, play on grassroots. It's not really grassroots. It looks like grassroots, but it's fake. And that's what the Tea Party was. Um, there definitely was organic uh, uh, um, anger, but it was totally fueled by big money. This is different. There's no big money fueling indivisible. Um, certainly a little bit, and move on and some other folks. But, I mean, this is, this is a grassroots movement, and that's exciting. Um, yes. Yeah, and it's and it's why the right wing calls uh, the responses uh, at these town halls paid agitators because they're used to, to having their own paid agitators. Yeah. And um and and that's really I agree with you. I mean, um, you know, I went to the women's march here in Phoenix, and 
And, you know, they expected 5,000 people. We had 20,000. And it was just like all over the country. I mean, and, and everybody, I mean, it was, they really were there. I mean, there were a lot of people that hadn't been there since the 60s, you know? And yeah. it, it, was, it was so heartening to, to talk to people. I mean, veterans and, and you know, women, um, you know, they had their issues. And it was, but everybody was united in the fact that, um, you know, we're, our rights are slipping away and, and we have to become united. It was, it was really the uh, uh, best thing that could happen to me in, in the depression that I have when, when Trump got elected. So. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. Uh, the, the, the women's march in Boston was, was almost like a spiritual reawakening. Um, it was, <laughs> It was, it was, no, it was magnificent. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to lie. I was, you know, horrendously upset when Trump won. It was like the biggest punch in the face I, I, I've had in my lifetime, right? And, yes. Yeah. And uh, it gave me hope. I mean, that's the thing, right? I mean, as bad as things are, you know, one of the core tenets of the daring democracy is, you know, we have to find hope. You can't just, you know, you can't just, you know, we can't just criticize. But people are going to, you know, turn off if they don't hope. And what the Women's March did, you know, for for people who were even already skeptical, you know, perhaps skeptical beyond the point of ever being an optimist again, uh, was at least give hope that that all is not lost. Um, and I have to, if, if you'll let me digress for one second, I have to tell you a story that we, we highlight in the book. And it's one of the, I mean, it's just, it's, it's one of the best things I've ever seen in my life. And it was while I was walking outside of the uh, Boston Commons, right? I couldn't even make it onto the Boston Commons. Um, there were so many people. And as we were marching along the street after people had left the Boston Commons, uh, people were chanting, whose democracy? Our democracy, right? Which is, you know, right. we, we, chant, we chanted that in Occupy Wall Street. We chanted it during the Democracy Spring. But there's this one image. In front of me is are, are two parents, a man and a woman, uh, and in between them, holding both of their hands, is a, is a boy no more than four years old. And as everyone is chanting, I can hear him ask, look up, ask his parents, what's democracy? And the parents look at each wow. other, up and smile, look back at him. And the mother says, it's when people have the power to make their own decisions. And the father then continues, it's a government of, by, and for the people. And the kid doesn't, doesn't you know, has one moment, says, okay, and then keeps swinging his arms. And forevermore, <laughs> this, this, this one kid, democracy will be that moment in the heart of protest with 150,000 other people in a safe environment fighting what they believe. And that, for me, is what daring democracy is all about. That's, the, that, that's why we fight. You fight to inspire you. You fight to give hope. And, and you fight to never give up. And, and, and it's that moment that makes it all worthwhile. If for nothing else, the Women's March for me was a success, because I'm sure there are hundreds of other people just like that little boy who maybe were never engaged in politics before, but we'll always be able to turn back to that moment and say, that's the moment that I remember I became political or I learned what democracy is, right? Democracy will never... Or what it should be, yeah. 
democracy will never just be casting a vote for this little boy. Democracy will mean something much bigger. And I think that's exactly what, you know, whether it be, you know, whether you call it direct democracy, whether you call it democracy just alone, whether or not, you know, whatever you call it, you know, the process of people power, um, this little boy will know the real definition, not just the, the cast a vote every two or four years. You know, I have to say, we were, before the show, Adam and I were talking about Occupy Wall Street and how it affected us. And when from the minute I was inspired, I never lost that drive, that hope, that knowing that there are so many people fighting for the same thing together. And that's when it started, when the movement started to grow all over the world. I remember looking at the maps online and just, and just in, in awe that it was just popping up everywhere. And then as, as it started to fade, I was just so heartbroken that it didn't grow more, but we were all became seeds and we were all doing different things and becoming and and this is just proof in the pudding that Adam, myself and so many others are doing so many incredible things to make this movement rock. And the rock is the people power, whatever you call it, whatever you want, what it doesn't matter. The people are going to to tip it. I know it because we have the fire in us. And, there, and the quote is, there is no more uh, powerful weapon in the world than a human soul on fire. And you could hear it in my voice when I speak, and you could hear it in Adam's voice when he speaks. We are determined, and this will change, and you will see it happen. I, I couldn't agree more with that. I mean, I know we talked beforehand about this, but I, I really couldn't agree more. And I wanted, we actually devote a full chapter um, to, to the emotional thrill of, of being in, in, in protest or in political action. And, and, right. and you know, we, we talk about, you know, divided into three, which is kind of civil, civic courage, civil courage, rather, um, which is kind of, you know, Fearful, but the, the belief that you can, you know, do something you didn't think was possible. Um, you know, the other one, you know, bonding with strangers, the connections you form, um, what you learn. Um, and the third is taking ownership. Um, this feeling of, of feeling like, you know, as, as my, my co-author, Francis, always says, that we're, we're the grown-ups in the room. That, that it, you know, when we, when we say whose democracy are democracy, it's not a platitude. We mean it. You know, we, we mean it. We're, yeah. we're owning, we're right. owning politics. And that's, that's not something to just be, be thrown aside as, as some sort of weird feeling and protest. No, that means something. You don't, you don't, you don't, you know, shed that feeling after the protest leaves. Um, and no. that kind of intang- intangible part of protest, we may not win legislative reform, you know, in that moment. But it, but I think you're right, you know, Stephanie. It, 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 it's the it's a fire that never leaves, and and you know, we define it those two ways. And I'm sure people have other kind of thoughts about how protest changes you and the emotional thrill of it. Um, but I think giving voice to that aspect of of, of coming together in, in, in unison is, you know, one of the things that we as people committed to social justice uh, have to do. Is, is, is show people, and this is what Francis and I try to do in the book, that that 
politics isn't just, you know, dry and dull spectator sport. It's, it's, it's enriching, it's enlivening, it's, it's the essence of being in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. There's nothing like it. Um, and it's heartbreaking. And, and people get hurt, people die. Um, but you do it not because it's your own self-interest, like, you know, John Locke or Thomas Hobbes would have you believe, but you do it because you love humans, you love people. You want to see everyone thrive. And I think that that, that is something that no one can take away once you, once you live it. Yeah, it's it's really virtuous. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and that brings me to another question. Um, I, I'm led to believe, and, and I may be wrong, but that that about half the states allow referendums and initiatives and about half the states don't. Is that correct, Adam? It's, it's uh, less than half. Less than yeah, half. to my knowledge, I think it's 22. Um, yeah. I don't don't quote me exactly, but I think I think the last time I checked, there was around 22. Um, yeah, I think, I think you're right. Um, but I, I do want to say, again, if I can, you know, if you'll permit me to a small hand. I mean, that's, that's an incredible opening. Um, you know, there's, there's a group that I, I respect, you know, a lot, and I'm, you know, I'm, you know close with the, the founder, uh, which is Represent Us. Um, and, and, and Josh Silver, who's the founder, co-founder of it, um, and director of it, um, they have a, a remarkable plan, and they, and they scored a huge victory this year. You know, to get something on the threat, anyone who doesn't know, to get something on a referendum or ballot initiative, rather, um, you know, usually just requires a certain number of signatures. Um, and that's what representatives did this past election cycle. They got, you know, one of the most uh, transformative pieces of democracy legislation called the Anti-Corruption Act on the ballot in Washington State and South Dakota. And believe it or not, the one that passed was South Dakota. The one that's the yeah. Yeah, two wow. very yeah. disparate states. Yeah. Well, and and wow. the crazy thing is, South, South Dakota, right? Talk about a non, right? Everyone always says, oh, you know, we need a nonpartisan movement, a bipartisanship, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's all, that's platitude. This is an actual reality. In South Dakota, they've uh, they voted for Republicans in 80%, 8 out of 10 of every statewide election in its history, right? And it's happened. Right the most radical piece of democracy legislation, which, mind you, included vouchers, which is basically a more progressive form of public financing than in other states. Um, and it failed in Washington, uh, the, one of the progressive capitals in the United States. Um, now, wow. it failed by, by, I think, less than, less than 1%. Um, it, it barely failed. Um, it was really about the language. The language is bad on the, on the ballot, but you know, this is a winning strategy, um, and it's a strategy that's been done or that, that that's been used, uh, you know, a, you know, throughout what we, like what Francis and I call the emerging democracy movement history. Um, and it all, you know, not all, but you know, one of the real pivots or, or pivotal points came in Maine in 1996, uh, and on the ballot, they, since they could they couldn't get public financing or what they call clean elections through the legislature. So what did they do? They put it on the ballot, and it passed. And they have it to this day. 21 years later, they have it. They love it. Um, there was a brief period where they had to, um, where because of a Supreme Court decision, it got gutted. Um, and what did they do when it was gutted? 
um, they um, they put it on the ballot again. They tried to go to the legislature. The legislature wouldn't fund it. And they wouldn't they wouldn't pass the fix. And so they put it on the ballot again, and it passed. Um, and it was strengthened. And all of a sudden, participation went up. Um, you know, it, 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 ballot initiatives can be a real force for for can be a real way to avoid the you know the moneyed interest that dominates state legislatures. Um, that is that, true, but and Arizona is apparently one of those 22 states that has it. Um, you know, it, it's always been a fact of life. I'm I'm a native Arizona, and I've I've moved away a couple times, but I've always come back. And um, when we get ballot issues, where whether it's marijuana or health issues or whatever, um, you know, the people will come up with a. Uh, an initiative, and then the moneyed people will come up with one or two more to cloud the issue. And yes. uh, it, so it it's it's hard for people that aren't involved and and you know just make decisions based on thirty or sixty second commercials. A lot of these things go down, even though they probably are voting against their own interests. Yeah, and and that's a and, really good point. And, and I, I have to just add as kind of a demonstration that that um, you know I think I wish I I wish I could pull up the exact numbers I don't have them right right in front of me yeah. but you know th- there were there were so many uh, ballot initiatives on the on the on the ballot in 2016 and I believe corporate interest outspent the the public interest by at least three to one I think it was probably more than that I forget exactly no oh, but, sure yeah um, I forget I forget the exact number. Um, but I'll, I'll look it up as, uh, as a talk. But, you know, and so, for example, in California, um, there was a, a bill to lower prescription drug prices. I believe corporate interest spent about $130 million, well outspending <laughs> the, you know, and this was the thing that Bernie Sanders went all in for and all that stuff. But, you know, at a certain point, um, it's just not possible to beat back that kind of big money. It's, it's certainly possible. Um, but it certainly it, it, it skews it skews the likelihood of that happening, um, and a lot of that, frankly, isn't isn't something that's inevitable. Um, corporate domination or corporate expenditure in ballot initiatives is something that was permitted by a Supreme Court case in 1978 called the First National Bank of Boston v. Bilotti, and that was really the first decision that the Supreme Court. Uh, more explicitly said that spending is a form of, uh, spending money is a form of speech. Um, the first case that kind of made a similar argument is Buckley v. Vallejo in 1976. Um, but Bilotti is, a, you know, a big factor in that. Um, so, you know, ballot initiatives uh, are not immune to the big money problems that are placed yeah. in elections as a whole. Certainly. Yeah. But in Arizona as well, uh, just as another kind of short tangent, Arizona passed public financing in 1998 uh, yeah. on, a ballot, on a ballot initiative. Um, so, so, you know, um, it goes both ways. Um, yeah, well, that's true, but, but our governor still got a great deal of help from the Koch brothers. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, Arizona is Arizona's tough because the what I was talking about before about Maine's public finance system being gutted, um, it, 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 
basically, if I can just get a little wonky for a second. Um, Please do. <laughs> most, most, uh, or the, there, there are really only three states. Well, four now, but really only three states that, uh, actually, only three now, because South Dakota that I was mentioning before, uh, the legislature actually moved to abolish the thing that was just passed, and they succeeded. Um, so South Dakota doesn't have an anti-corruption act anymore. It's the voters passed it, but the legislature overrode it. Uh, which is super anti-democratic, but I digress. Um, but so basically, the Supreme Court uh, in 2011, in a case called that's shorthand Bennett, and that's a really long name, ruled that states that try and allow their candidates who use public financing to be competitive uh, by having what they call trigger funds. So essentially, you know, in Arizona or Maine. If you get a certain number of signatures and a certain number of small money donations, you get a big chunk of money, and that finances your campaign, and you can't take any more money. Um, and so, right. as a way of yeah, saying, right. okay, well, so you know, they say, okay, well, if there's a candidate who's not publicly financed who spends millions upon millions of dollars, well, if they spend above a certain amount, um, then what a trigger. You know, you know, mechanism gets gets enacted, which basically allots more money to the publicly financed candidate. Um, it's a very simple thing that was done for 15 years, uh, and it worked really well. Uh, and then in 2011, the Supreme Court really it was John Roberts, the Chief Justice, who, yeah. under the under under the rationale of uh, because. If I have this right, because on the Arizona Clean Elections website it had a reference to equality, that meant it was unconstitutional. Um, <laughs> because the Supreme Court in Buckley v. Vallejo, 1976, said uh, uh, limiting the voices for some to raise the voices for others is wholly foreign to the First Amendment. Um, and so, you know, basically saying equality is off the table, only corruption. Corruption to prevent corruption is acceptable, but but equality is against the First Amendment, you know. Um, and so Roberts just, you know, Justice Roberts just out of nowhere, you know, they you know they they say, okay, well, you know, they said this is the case, they felt equality, uh, triggering funds are unconstitutional. Um, obviously, it's a little more. I'm simplifying it, but that that was kind of one of the more absurd statements in in the the uh, the arguments and opinions. Um, and so that then got rid of triggering funds, which dismantled or really allowed, let's call it, uh, it, it prevented candidates who accepted public financing to be viable, especially post-Citizens United, where you do see an increase of, of state-level spending um, and secret spending. Right. Um, and so and, the, and the, super really PAC spending, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and, and so and – so, you know, the, but it's interesting, right, that, that you have two case studies. One is Arizona and one is Maine. Uh, both of their triggering mechanisms were ruled unconstitutional. Uh, both saw sharp declines in the number of candidates who were participating in these systems. Uh, Maine, in 2015, uh, finally passes a fix via ballot initiative, and all of a sudden for 2016, the number of candidates using that, the, the public fight goes way back up. Arizona, on the other hand, never passed a fix, and their public financing, public financing system is basically worthless now. Um, so it's, right. it's really, it, it really is both sad but instructive, 
right? It, it, it's one in the same. It, it, it's sad but instructive because it shows that nothing is inevitable, that even when all seems lost, even when the anti-democracy forces as high as the Supreme Court, you know, sucker punch you, uh, you can still fight back. And there are ways to do it, um, which I think is, 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 I mean, that gives me hope. Uh, again, to return to hope. Um, I, I, I think that's one of the, the stories that, that, that makes me you know, keep fighting. Yeah, well, in these days, we, we certainly need it. Um, and again, with, uh, you know, losing the court seat uh, because they wouldn't vote on Garland last year and, and uh, you know, put in a more right-wing judge this year. Um, it does give, it does make it bleak to those of us who believe the court is our last line of defense. Yeah, to say the least. To say the least, then it's bleak. Yeah, it really is. I mean, the, the, the Gorsuch robbery, what it really was, is yeah. um, something that I still can't really think about. I can't really bring myself to digest it because it's a little too heartbreaking. I need a little time to ease into it. Um, but yeah, um, it's it's really heartbreaking. Um, but again, the good news is that something like public financing uh, is wholly consistent with the Constitution, and the Supreme Court has held it wholly constitutional, wholly um, uh, uh, acceptable to the Constitution. All right, triggering funds is a small blip, but public financing in and of itself is totally fine. Um, which is why you know on the issue of money and politics. Uh, that's really where a lot of reformers are, are going, and rightfully so. Uh, oh, yeah, trying absolutely. To limit, trying to limit the amount of money in politics at this point is it, it, it's just a little too hard at the moment. Um, if we get a better court, um, then setting reasonable limits is, is whole, you know, totally uh, realistic. Right now, though, um, all we can really do is um, – not all. Tread water. The most effective thing to do is to raise the voices of those who are getting uh, drowned out. Right. Um, well, um, Stephanie, do you have any questions? Because I've kind of, uh, um, you know, been aggressive about asking questions. I, 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 you know, it's your show if you've got some questions. or. or... <laughs> I don't own anything, man. <laughs> it's everybody's, you know. Um, Imagine all the people, I, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's the people's. Um, but serious, I mean, I, I know I don't have any questions. I'm just, I'm learning so much, and I'm loving every second of this, and I'm very grateful well, to have you I, on the show. Then I do have a question. Yeah, this is great. Um, your time in Paris, and and again, I'm, pretty much ignorant. I know a little bit, I, you know, I try to be aware, but, um, isn't France, don't they have a, a, sh- a much shorter, um, campaign time and don't they have, uh, everybody who's running gets to be in the, uh, debates and, and they have a certain amount of commercials and all that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, it's just, there's so much difference, difference. I mean, the, the election cycle is certainly shorter, although France, if you're looking for, 
shorter election cycles. France is not necessarily the, the best example. I mean, they definitely, you know, just like in the United States, there are rumors that is this person going to run, you know, I mean, the yeah. whole campaign to last a long time anyway. But that said, exploratory committees, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think they, they, you know, they exactly have exploratory committees, but I mean, there's definitely talks about, you know, things like that. And um, but yeah, I mean, one of the things that you find that is so much better is certainly that, you know, public media is is so much more prominent, um, and they host debates, and you know, there's more parity. I forget exactly. I wish I had it. Uh, on the tip of my tongue here, but I mean, yeah, there's certainly, you know, a lot of countries, I, I don't know exactly France as well, but some countries provide, instead of what you call direct public financing, which is what, like, we have in the United States, you know, like in Maine, they give you a block sum to spend, they have what's called indirect mm-hmm. public financing, so they have, you know, free postage or free media, um, so every candidate right. you know, is, is uh, allotted a uh, certain amount of media time, either on an equal basis or based on previous election results. Um, and, I mean, also, just to be honest, you know, watching TV in France, especially the news, I mean, just generally speaking, have a little bit of a higher level of discourse in, what is, in what's allowed. Um, you know, they'll have representatives on both sides, but it won't just be kind of talking about nothing, right? Like when you turn on CNN, for example, I mean, it, it, it's just a bunch of talking about nothing. Um, whereas yeah. generally the debates are going to be more more substantial. It's going to be about policy. It's going to be about, um, and I'm not I'm not claiming France as a, a beacon to emulate, but there are definitely um, definitely a lot of shortcomings. I and mean, in France right now, the number one the person who's polling number one in all the polls is a, basically kind of a neo-fascist. Um, right. Uh, she won't win. Oh, well, knock on wood. I mean, I, never say never, but the I don't think she'll win. Um, you have you have me on record now making that shot, but I could be proven wrong. But the way the French elections work, um, uh, her father actually was the one who uh, made it past the first round of elections. And the first, after the first round of elections, it's top two or anyone who gets above twenty percent of the primary votes uh, out of the first round votes rather uh, makes it to the second round. So that's really usually just a competition between the two. And in 2002, her father made it into the second round against the right-wing candidate. And all the people you know, who supported the left-wing candidates voted for the right-wing candidate over the neo-fascists because, you know, obviously. <laughs> um, and so, he, you know, he got crushed. And so I don't, I don't think Marie Le Pen will get crushed, but I think that no matter who, like whatever two, whoever opposes Le Pen in, in the second round, uh, whether it's the centrist candidate or the right-wing candidate or whoever, I feel like everyone's probably going to coalesce around that candidate over the really xenophobic, anti-Semitic uh, <laughs> campaign. Um, but I digress. But all that is to say is that, you know, um, you know I, I guess I, actually this is a good opportunity to say, you know, um, when you give – opportunities for people to vote, sometimes they do make bad choices and supporting someone like, you know, Le Pen is not, is not good, but I, I attribute that more towards, um, you know, an increasingly uh, austerity driven economic system in, in Europe that, that has made this an issue and kind of latent racism, um, you know, but it, it's definitely something for those of us who advocate for democracy to, to really think about. And there's no easy question. 
Uh, right, and the, the, the fear based on what happened with Brexit, I would think that um, that would give her, you know, some more um, energy too. No, absolutely, and and you know, this is one of the things that we we um, have to really grapple with actually. When after we handed in the the first um, the first draft or the or the the first draft of the manuscript, there was this new article that was released. A bunch of articles about the Mercer family. Um, and who who have really created this alternative media ecosystem um, <laughs> in the United States, funding things like Breitbart, other kind of you know fringe right wing um, uh, online services, and also using yeah yeah and and, and, and serves also what they you know one of the things that they do is they fund this this organization called Cambridge Analytica which is like basically a big data firm that claims to, although there's skepticism about whether or not it actually does this, um, about collecting big data and then targeting messages in in a very like psychologically manipulative way. Um, And that's really worrisome for those of us who care about democracy because one of the the kind of the core tenets of democracy is is an informed citizenry. and so we were already struggling with that, given that our increasingly um, consolidated and profit-driven media system doesn't give us the best information. Like most of us realize this at this point. Um, but once you get into this really shady, uh, targeted Facebook ads that, you know, dig to our deepest emotional fears, uh, all of a sudden things are a little a little more devious. Um, and it just so happened that Cambridge Analytica was also involved with the Brexit campaign. Um, and who, you know, who, no one knows exactly what they did. You know, again, this is not like a conspiracy theory. No one knows. This is all public record. Um, but it definitely does raise questions about if you are going to have things like ballot initiatives or, you know, in the, state, in, in the case of the UK, um, uh, uh, basically direct democracy deciding the fate of the country in relation to the economic and, and political unit of the Euro- European Union, uh, you need to think about uh, information channels and, and education. Um, exactly. And that's something we really have to think about because uh, it's really dangerous to have citizens who, uh, through no fault of their own, aren't getting the correct information off of which to make a good choice. Um, you know, uh, I mean, what you found, but how do you police, how do you police that? It's, I, I, I don't have the answer to that. I, I mean, that, you know, I mean, you got Bill O'Reilly, you got Bill O'Reilly coming on and saying, this is, you know, warning, uh, this is the no spin zone. And then what he does for the next 59 minutes is, is spin. Yeah. And, well, it's true. I mean, uh, you know, I helped people spin for 25, 30 years, and and I know what it is. And no, it's true. Uh, and when you and and when you can uh, get down to the minutia of of you know the internet and people's buying habits and everything else, I mean, you can spin like a termite. I mean, it's uh, it's horrifying. Uh, but but how do you say? What's fair and what's not fair? 
No, I mean that's definitely true. And I mean, and the one thing, the one thing, you know, the, the couple of solutions we offer to this, uh, and we we don't pretend to give all the answers, nor even necessarily an expert opinion. But the, what we, the kind of the main, the main things that we, we identify is are, are basically the following: net neutrality. Um, without right. net neutrality, Which is dying. yeah, I mean net neutrality is very important. Uh, secondly, preventing any further consolidation of media companies. Um, third, uh, increasing public subsidies, or even just at this point, saving public subsidies for public radio and public TV and community radio. Um, right. So, uh, groups that are doing the investigative journalism that we need. I mean, groups like, you know, as bad as things are, we still have groups like ProPublica but like, what would it be right. like if ProPublica were to have tenfold the budget? Um, you know, uh, you know, we're definitely in the right direction uh, regarding that if that were enacted. Um, and then, lastly, and this this gets to my point that I was talking about about the the way in which big data is collected and used uh, in campaigns, uh, whether it be ballot initiatives or uh, electoral campaigns, is we should have tighter regulations, or at least no have better open disclosure about what is being collected and how our data is used. Um, and, and I think that those four things are incredibly important moving to, in the direction, at least, of a more, let's say, a, of at least preserving a bare minimum um, civic discourse. Uh, because without those four, I mean, we are in trouble. Now, that doesn't mean that if we lose net neutrality, the game's over. Um, it's certainly not. It's never going to be over. But um, it, it'll definitely be a, a uh, again, a little bit of a punch in the gut. No, we have well, yeah, to. It's, it's, it's up ahead. to us to light the fire and, and get people. I mean, net neutrality is, I mean, they, that's like shutting the lights off on on information. I mean, they, they can't do that. I mean, They're you're limiting people's access. It's all it's 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 racist. It's it, what they're trying to do. It's we corporate. Can't, we can't. We can't. Yeah, it's corporate. We can't let them do it. We can't let them do it. People have yeah, to understand and, what it is. That's the problem. Yeah, no one's talking true. about it. Well, so one of one of the that that is probably the story of saving that or really enacting saving and kind of strengthening that neutrality is one of the. The most interesting stories that that I learned about in the process of writing Daring Democracy, and we feature it in the section about media reform, and it's fascinating uh, because a group of uh, citizens basically came together, and I, I talked to the people, you know some of the folks who were involved in this, and waged a, a heck of a campaign, um, and it was a diverse campaign. I mean, there were establishment groups to Black Lives Matter to tech companies like Netflix. Um, and, you know, there was a, two activists who engaged in a, an occupation in front of the uh, FCC headquarters about 15 days before they were going to come down with that proposed uh, guideline for how to move forward. Um, and they, at the, at the, there was a protest, and at the end of the protest, uh, these two folks, uh, Margaret and Kevin, just, just declared they're working, you know, in camp here. Um, and then 20 people ended up 
camping there for the next week. Um, and then, you know, the snowball kept rolling down the hill, more and more momentum, um, and, you know, kept developing. And, and in the course of about six-plus months, when the comment period ended up being opened about the, the proposed uh, course of action for the FCC, for a record four million people gave comments um, about something as obscure and wonky as net neutrality. Um, you know, this is one of the, the kind of the stories that I tell the folks who say, well, people just aren't educated enough to get something as complicated as net neutrality. No, people are. Like, don't be so, they are. you know, don't, don't be so, so disparaging of your fellow, fellow citizens. People, people can understand if you take the time to explain it. Um, and, and, and for me, the, the story that I, I learned about just the way in which these Big tech company, te- big tech companies got together with Black Lives Matter activists um, is just for me the 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 exemplar of what Francis and I call a a movement of movements that people come together um, from diverse issues and recognize that they're part of a single. Uh, struggle in a lot of ways. I mean, it, it, perhaps this is, you know, tech companies somehow sometimes have devious purposes too. Um, they definitely do. But, but, but forming coalitions that may have diverse issue, issues that they focus on, um, but when the, that moment of action occurs, right, for like net neutrality or voting rights or uh, police brutality, you show up, you know, um, you know, I mean, that's one of the things that I guess I was kind of exposed to a little in Occupy when I was involved there is that, you know, people say, well, what is your singular demand? There is no singular demand because many of these issues no. are inter- interlinking. And moreover, um, even if they're not interlinking, part of what forming a, a, a unified movement means you show up even if, you know, you're, you're not uh, directly affected. Uh, and that's what you're finding, especially in regards to, you know, I mean, for me, one of the, the kind of the most important moments of that is the bridging between money and politics and voting rights. Uh, for a long time, those have been very two distinct uh, spheres. There are groups that focus on voting rights and groups that uh, focus on money and politics. But increasingly, you're finding that uh, the line is totally blurred. The NAACP is coming up strong against big money and politics. And groups like Common Cause, that are, you know, or or other, you know, establishment uh, insider, primarily lobbying groups, are you know, and primarily white, are coming together to rally around voting rights, even though they're not particularly affected by it, right? In the sense that their membership, which might be more white, is not going to be as affected by voting rights as the NAACP, or in terms of voting I rights, have, um, yeah. I have a question. Backing yeah. up to France a little bit. Yeah. Uh, were you in France last year at this time? Last year at this time, yes. Uh, well, right now I would have been in in uh, at Democracy Spring, but uh, okay. a little later. Well, then you you're aware of Nuit Debout. Yep, yep. I actually went because um, it's still around when I when I got back. Yep, I I went to the encampments. I went to the stuff, and it was really inspiring. I'm Nui Debu USA oh. on Twitter and Facebook, oh, really? and officially on the Nui Debu.fr, Yes. Um, 
I, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Chris. Could we have, can we have Adam spend two or three minutes about why it was really inspiring and what the camps were like and things like that? Sure. I'll definitely, I was going to ask the same question. Yes, please. Yeah, so I, I'm certainly no expert around it, but there was a, a big uh, labor law that there were that the, the socialists, but don't be confused, they're not you know they're not actually socialists. They're like the center left party of France was trying to enact, and, and they're just kind of, to my understanding, it was kind of the straw that broke the, broke the camel's back, and you know, and, and basically just people started uh, gathering in uh, the the Republic Plaza um, in Paris, and. They um, originally kind of started as people just getting together for dialogue. That's my understanding. Again, I wasn't there at the start. Uh, but when I got there um, in, I guess it would have been very early May, uh, it, was, it was, and I actually told my friend who was visiting me from the United States, and he was just young enough that he was too young to have been occupied. Um, but I said to him, I said, this is the closest thing that I've seen since Occupy to Occupy. Um, and it gave me the same feel. It gave me exactly the same feel. It was, there were a bunch of different tents, each set up for a different purpose. Um, in, the, in the center of the, of the encampment was a, people sitting around in a circle debating, talking, having what we would have called a, a general assembly. Right. Um, and it was, you know, it was that same kind of deliberative, uh, dialogue-focused um, encampments that, that helped inspire me to be interested in the social justice work, uh, which I am. Um, and so, I mean, I think for that reason, I think almost purely, or, or if only because it, it, it gave me this, this pure sense of, of like coming home or, or this, the sense of, of reminiscing, uh, it was important for me just for that reason, but more so, uh, just because of, it reminded me of how powerful it can be when you take a space that is in quotes public, but is never really used for public purposes beyond just individuals walking uh, right. And really turning it into, into a real public space, right? Yes, um, I love that. It, yes. I mean, Hannah, Hannah Arendt, the, the, the philosopher, talked, you know, talked about this, that in the human condition, that, that, that public, the public is, is, is only when people come together. And in that moment, a space is public. And when people leave, it's no longer public. It ceases to be public. But the memory <laughs> of the public lasts on. And it's like in that spirit that I, I was in, I was in those camps. That like in that moment, people coming together and using it and, and deliberating and, and being political um, was making this this plaza um, public again. Yeah, it's the it's the four year old boy story, you know. I mean, it, exactly. Yeah. Um, it, it 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 is inspiring. Um, you know, whether it's a four-year-old boy and his parents talking to him uh, as an adult and, and, you know, telling him the truth as a, you know, and then an adult going in and, and feeling down and, and then going into these camps and, 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 um, and seeing people dis- discuss reality. 
and uh, and it brings it brings your spirits back. Absolutely. I, I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it's exactly what we were talking about before. You know, it just uh, when you come together with people you don't know for a common purpose, it's uh, it's not something that you can treat lightly. It's it's a really it's a really moving experience. How do you feel about uh, voting by mail? So that's a really interesting question. Um, I, Thank you. <laughs> uh, if you would have asked me three months ago, I probably wouldn't have had an opinion. Uh, but I spoke to folks in Oregon um, where they have uh, vote by mail and drop off voting, um, and it works really well, um, like really well. Uh, and it's amazing what happens when you reduce the burden of, of the voter, when you make elections more public in the sense of a, a public uh, process in which, in which you don't, you know, you really try to make it as easy as possible. Um, you know, there are certainly ways to improve it. Um, you, you know, safeguards definitely, you know, unlike, unlike uh, voting in person, um, the real only cases of voter fraud are, you know, absentee ballots, um, which is why voter ID laws are so dumb, because they usually don't require ID for absentee ballots. But the, really, the only documented cases of, of in person or of, of voter fraud are, are absentee. Um, so, I mean, that's bizarre in and of itself. But but so, so there's definitely like rational concern. For for making sure that the integrity of the the system is is uh, in place, but concern is not reason to be opposed to it, right? That's just more of kind of um, something to just be wary of. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I talked to election experts that that say voter mail is great, um, and usually they'll also receive they'll you know I was talking to somebody who who is running a campaign for. Uh, in um, in Oregon to lower the amount that individuals can give to the county election in terms of money, and apparently in Oregon for all the um, the ballot initiatives they give every voter a, a, a big stack to explain it. They give, they give you the text, um, and and that's very cool too. Um, there are a lot of very innovative innovative things that you can do to ease the burden, and that's definitely one. And another one is well, we have. Another one is what? Oh, sorry. Uh, another one is drop-off voting or, or, or vote set. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, so instead of having one singular polling place, you have, you know, I don't know, a, a bad example, but like, you know, a store like Walmart, and it wouldn't be Walmart, but like just take, take that, you know, for example, where you allow, you set up a, 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 you know, a big kind of space where anybody in a vicinity can drop off their ballot there and vote there. On their way from work. Yeah, how about a, like a local library or something like that? Yeah. Right. I mean, exactly. I mean, there, there are many ways that you can, you know, reduce the. And a lot of these things, again, is, is not just about like increasing turnout. It's also about increasing the the convenience uh, or the voter experience and increasing the time for election workers. Um, you know, there there are many more aspects of voting and elections than just turnout. Um, voter experience is, is, is a key one, right? The, the easier the voter experience is, the more likely they'll vote again, right? Which which does, shouldn't surprise anybody that in some of these states where you have to wait, I think it, it, 
<clears throat> the likelihood that somebody uh, votes again after waiting an hour in line, is, the drop-off is significant. Because why, why would you, right? Because your marginal vote is probably not going to make the biggest difference. Um, you know, if you're really looking at it at, at a rational basis, or, you know, uh, your singular vote may not make you know, that much difference. It really worth an hour of your time if you work two jobs and have, a, you know, one or two children. The answer is probably not in your individual calculation. So making voting easier uh, in many different ways is, is more than just turnout. It's, just, it's also just about quality of life and, and your commitment to democracy as a whole, right? I mean, that's another thing that, that we don't really ever think about. We always assume that, that people love democracy because in our DNA. Um, but democracy <laughs> is more than that. Yeah, you, you, have to, you have to show people that it's worth it, that, that democracy is not just, as again, as my co-author um, and friend Francis would say, it, it's not just democracy isn't just the spinach you have to get to, you have to eat to get to your freedom, right? That democracy right. Is, is, is it's a civic engagement that's meaningful, that's not a burden, or if it is a burden, it's a good burden, not just waiting in line for an hour. Like democracy, it is a burden. But the burden, so far as you should be, you need to educate yourself, you need to take your choices seriously, you know, deliver, you have to deliberate, you have to talk to people that you wouldn't normally talk to, you have to be comfortable with disagreements. Um, but, but part of that hardship and, and difficulty of democracy, it, it should not be waiting an hour in line. That's a waste of everybody's time. And that is so counterintuitive. And I guess yes. that kind yeah. of reframe of democracy that I think is really important moving forward. Yeah, I I don't want to digress too much, but in um, in Maricopa County where I live in Phoenix, um, we had two hundred polling places, and the uh, the county registrar turned that into sixty, and and cut out one hundred and forty um, voting places, and the and the areas where it got cut were democratic areas that the the rich areas in North Scottsdale and everything else, they, they were in and out in five minutes in, in, you know, in parts of uh, the lower income or the more um, left wing parts of Phoenix, it was four or five hours. Um, yeah. Standing in line. And, and, and it was like, oops, uh, you know, they, they didn't, acknowledge at all why they did it and um uh but it's it 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 is uh, really a harbinger of 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 why we need things to 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 make it easier because people will i mean that's what they want to do is they want to deflate the opposition right and um it is um and and well, I wanted to go back to, to mail-in voting. Uh, the way I understand it in Switzerland, when you become of voting age, you get mailed a ballot. So apparently you don't have to declare whether or not you know, you belong to a party. You just get a ballot mailed to you. Um, do you think everybody who's of voting age in America should be able to get a ballot? Oh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you know, if they meet the qualifications of, of the voter, which really should just be above 18, if not a little younger. I mean, there are studies that show that, that a 16-year-old is just as likely to make a, you know, a 
an informed decision as an 18-year-old. Um, Absolutely. But, um, you know, uh, but, yeah, and if you're, if you're a citizen and if you, you know, um, uh, if you meet the age requirement, I, I, I don't see why not. I mean, in most other countries, again, one of the most shocking things to my friends there was the notion of voter registration. Um, the idea that, that you have to register is wholly foreign to them. Uh, my friend from Spain, when you turn a certain age, you get a, you get a card, um, and you can vote with that card. Um, so it's like a voter ID, but everyone gets it, and you don't apply for it. You just get it, and it's assumed that that is your card, and that card is also the card you use for, I understand correctly, also for, like, healthcare. It's, it's your card. Um, and oh, that's you know, that opens up a whole other can of worms about healthcare, but let's you know, let's not get into that. Um, but yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and one of the things that for me is so inspiring is again go back to Oregon in 2015. Um, they enacted the first system of statewide automatic voter registration, which is exactly kind of what we're talking about. It's a little right. less automatic, but but so for Oregon, so for anyone who doesn't know, in Oregon, basically what they what they did is that anybody who interacts with the DMV, whether it's to renew a license, to get your license for the first time, anything with the DMV, when you fill out the proper paperwork, they will send that information on to the Board of Elections and will register you for you. And then you'll get your registration information in the mail, and it'll already be done. You'll be registered. It won't be like you have a sign and send it back in. Um, and then at that point, you can choose a party if you want. Um, and you can opt out, right? It's an opt-out system, so it's automatic. You can check a box if you're really, really opposed to registering to vote. Um, but the point is the burden is on the government um, to do it. Um, and in Oregon, it, it's fascinating uh, because 240,000 people, give or take, were registered through this program, new voters, <clears throat> um, and which well exceeds the normal rate of, I mean, per month, per week, the, the numbers were staggering, you know, like multitudes higher than normal. Um, so people were using this. They were benefiting from the system. And then of the, the 230 to 240,000 folks who were registered, uh, I believe it was 97,000 of them voted for the first time. Like of that percent, wow. which is about wow. 40%, which seems super low, right? Oh, 40%. Well, 60% didn't want to vote. That, that's besides the point because 40% of people who were on the margin, right, who are people who in normal circumstances would not have voted is an outstanding increase of voter turnout. I mean, just, just, just phenomenal. I mean, we're talking like, like, you know, totally mind-blowingly uh, uh, off the chart. Um, yeah. And so, so they were the, the, Oregon was the first one to have a full year of that. But since yeah. Oregon enacted that, five states have followed suit. Um, yeah, California did it too, didn't they? Yeah, California, West yeah. Virginia, Vermont, I believe, Connecticut, and then, um, and then uh, uh, in 2016 on the ballot, uh, Alaska passed it. It was all again. It was on the ballot, and the citizens chose to to enact it. Um, and so now six states have some variation of it, um, and uh, all of them are different. Um, you know, New York is looking. New York and Massachusetts might might be the next ones, and some of them are great. 
Um, you know, and, and you don't have to limit it just to uh, the DMV. You can limit. You can expand it to all government agencies, like the you know welfare programs. Every time right. someone applies for welfare, uh, and all of a sudden, all, you know, you now have this. You know, generally speaking, just as a slight tangent, again, if I can get a little wonky, but um, if you look at, at voter registration and voter turnout by um, income level, it's linear. I mean, it, it could not be more linear. The more money you have, the more likely you are to register, and the more likely you are to vote, period. Um, and so if you start enacting these with, with, you know, welfare, all of a sudden it's a game changer. Um, and you have, you know, what is oftentimes just a large burden for, for uh, low-income people who, frankly, have better things to think about than registering to vote, you know, like taking care of their children and making sure there's food on the table. All of a sudden, that process is now automatic, and they can vote if they choose to vote. They may not vote. Yeah, and if you option. add in mail-in voting, you don't have to worry about the child being there with you at the polls. You can just make your decision and mail it in, and you don't need child care. No, precisely. And, and there, are other, there are other very common sense things, like early voting. Not everyone can spend a Tuesday in November voting. Uh, Same-day registration. If for some reason you're not registered on Election Day, why can't you register to vote then and there? Um, you know, think, uh, yeah, pre-registration. That's always bothered me. The, the same day? Well, no, it's always bothered me that uh, we haven't had that in Arizona. That uh, oh, you, if you don't re- if you don't register within a couple months of the the election, then then you're out of luck. Yeah, and, and, and you know one of the things that I, I, I uh, you know I was talking to a colleague and friend who is the, the former president of, of Common Cause, Miles Rappaport, and we were talking about same day registration, and he was actually the person who really advocated that we look into this. Because this is what he, you know, this is the work he's been doing for a long time, but he knew it. And I was blown away. What you find is if you allow same-day registration, um, you know, voter turnout can go, can increase up to 13%. Um, I have to double-check that, but I'm pretty confident. It, it, it's certainly a range, but, I mean, it, you know, the, the high estimate is about 13%. Um, and it's not just for people who didn't register before. Um you know, it could be people who just for some reason have registered and, and maybe moved to a different precinct. Or people who, I mean, I, I've done that before. I've had to fill out a, a what they call a, um, what they call it, a, 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 a provisional ballot. Where, yeah, provisional ballot. Oh. Thank you. That's what I was for. Uh, because at, when I was in college, uh, the, the local community or the state, whoever, split the college into three separate districts. Um, with two different polling places. So I moved from one dorm to another dorm or senior housing, and I moved polling locations. I was registered to vote. I'm a smart guy. I love democracy. I followed the elections. I knew who I was going to uh, vote for. But I had to sign up uh, um, an affidavit because of, I forgot to register in time to vote in the primary when I wasn't there uh, during the summer. Um, and so, so same-day registration is not just for people who were too lazy, quote-unquote, to, to, to register before election right. day. It's all, right. It's well, you, had, you had Trump's kids that couldn't even vote in New York because they didn't register in time. No, it's, it's true. It, it's not, this is, yeah. 
the system just doesn't work efficiently. And so same-day registration is just a very great, it's a very good way to increase the efficiency. Yeah, it's not system. humane. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and same, and I have, to, I have to give a shout-out also to pre-registration for 16 and 17 schools. Um, I mean, think about it. When you're 16 and 17, you want to vote, but then you can't. Uh, and then at 18, you go off to college. So how many kids are going out to college and don't know where to register or don't know how to register back home or, you know, never developed the kind of the connection to the community? Um, and, and, and pre-registration allows you to take care of that before you go to college um, or for people who don't go to college. But the earlier you get uh, the youth involved with the electoral process, even if it's as minor as just being able to pre-register in your high school civics class, is a big step towards making sure they have a lifelong commitment to voting. I was going to say we did that when I was in high school. Uh, I'm a few years older than you. This is 1985. My senior year, we we registered to vote. Oh, well, then I'm a million years older than you. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, you know, but it's true. It's that when you at age 16, 17, and even 18, I mean, that, those are formative years, totally formative years. And, and it's, a great, it's a great learning moment um, to, to bestow upon those young people the, the burden and joy of registering to vote. It, it, it's, it's just like you have to register for the military, and, you know, you should have to, you know. Uh, well, that's the no point. We should all be taught how our government works and how the monetary system works and all of those things too, you know. Yeah, and I, I don't want to get into the weeds, but I, I've always thought, well, I not always, but in the recent past, I've thought that we should um, regenerate the draft um, because um, I, I was of age. I had a draft number. I was scared to death. Um, uh, you know, Vietnam was raging and everything else. And uh, it, it certain, certainly motivated me to go to the polls. Um, it certainly motivated me to to know uh, which side I wanted to be on and why. Uh, and it certainly motivated parents um, of kids that were going to get drafted to to, to think a little bit harder about their voting. And I think that um, that males and females should be subject to the draft for this reason. And, and, if, and I think that you should have the, the opt-out to be able to go volunteer somewhere. Um, but I think it, it really affects how you vote, and it, and there's a, and it, and it would affect uh, interest among young people. Um, uh, am I wrong? No, I'd like to take that one step further and say, you know, for the tuition-free college, you have to uh, have so much community service or or put so much in to get that benefit. Oh, that's interesting. You know, that was always my idea. You know, I, I, yeah. I think what, we're, what, what you both are getting at, which I think is a very important part of democracy as well, is is a belief in the public and in, 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 you know, I mean, the past 30 years, 40 years, you have a privatization of everything from, 
you know, uh, uh, more privatization of the financial industry, which was already very private, but also from parks to um, households to education to, you know, what have you. Crazy. Yeah, and, and, and you know, I have to say, as as someone who grew up in an era, you know, in this environment, I've never known anything else other than an extremely privatized, individualistic, atomistic um, society. I think that you know, conversations about how to reinvigorate, um, uh, you know, the public or the public commons, some sort of public, um, whether community service or whatever, I think is I think is important. Um, you know, I think that, that teaching people, you know, especially young folks, that we're in this together and you can't just, you know, go through life um, doing your own thing all the time uh, is definitely important. But I, w- I will say that what makes it very hard, and I think that, definitely you, you alluded to this, is that, um, you know, it's increasingly hard to have any sort of care for a public when you're saddled with student debt. And credit right. card debt and other things that force Absolutely. you to either go go into corporate law or business or you know whatever or you know just have to worry about your finances. So you know I think that um, I mean I I have, I have a friend who has you know eighty k in debt. Um, you know so my what choices does he have? My husband is my husband's one hundred twenty thousand yeah. dollars in student debt. Yeah, you no, know. It's, it's, it's re- it's really utterly incredible, and and you wonder it's why. You know, yeah, well, you wonder why why young people don't don't you know go to a community organizing school or you know do uh, I don't know some sort of service for a couple of years after college because you can't. <laughs> you know, I have a number of friends who just can't. They have to. They had no option to you know do what I'm doing now. You know, writing a book. Um, you have to go make some money to pay off those debts. And if you don't, then they're going to increase and increase and increase, and then your kids will have student debt because you can't cancel them. You know, it's like, um, so that's, that's definitely an important conversation. Okay, well, one more question, and then I want you to, uh, um, or unless you have a something you want to ask Stephanie, but I have one more question and then I want you to talk about what you think are the most important parts of the book that, you know, you want to tell us. Um, mm-hmm. But my question in, as you probably know, in Australia, um, if you don't vote, you get fined. Mm-hmm. Um, should, should voting be mandatory? Mm-hmm. That's a really good question, and I'm I'm not so sure I I have I'm not so sure I have an answer, um, and that's not trying to to, to no I understand um, because I I see both sides, and it, I think it depends on on the day. Um, I think it depends on the the day you ask me in some respects. Um, <laughs> I I would say I think that. If you really make voting an enjoyable and enriching experience, it's not necessary. That said, I think that voting is something that does need to be decided by the people. And as such, people will need to make that choice. Um, and putting a negative incentive on not voting is certainly 
um, a convincing potential alternative. Um, so I, I'm not I'm not sure. Um, I lean no, just because I think there are more than enough kind of more positive, like not not positive in terms of trying to disparage obligatory voting, but I mean positive in terms of like positive reinforcement as opposed to kind of the negative, which is the penalty, um, ways to make democracy work better. Um, but I, I think that's a really important question, and I think it's a question that people who care about democracy do need to think about, um, if only just to unlock more ways that we can increase voting without it, um, if that makes sense. No, it makes sense. Um, but, you know, I think about city municipal elections where 18% is a large yeah. vote. You yeah. know, that's really no, bothersome to me. No, it, it, I, can, I completely agree with you. I mean, I mean, the, this is something that I, I've actually been thinking a lot about, about why, what, what, I mean, I kind of know why, but, you know, how, what do we do to reinvigorate the, the like, local elections and, and even state elections? Um, yeah. And, you know, part of me wants to say, well, you need a media that, that cares. Um, when when our media doesn't when most people don't even know that there's an election, there's a problem. Um, but that said, um, it, 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 it's an issue that I thus far um, in my in my study of, of this of democracy I, I haven't I haven't reached. Um, and I, I know that's unsatisfying, but I, I think no, that's that's, um. that's, that's that's me saying just as a, as a clear. That's me not side, like not rejecting it. But it, it, it's me saying that I just don't know which. I, I see compelling arguments on both sides. Yeah, no, I can see both sides of the coin too. Um, it's 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 just frustrating, you know, when you really do believe that if more people voted, that sanity may take over. Um, <laughs> Yes. You know. Yeah. Uh, oh, we're definitely in, in strange land now. Yeah, well, how you goose it is 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 important, and you know, I don't want to goose it in a in a direction that that sounds fascist or well, or in a way uh, that you know, uh, you know, sounds coercive. Well, I it's in, and I would like to know Adam's feeling, but. From what I'm seeing, I I say we're very close to uh, in the street revolution. Hmm. Well, you know what what I'll say is that people are. I mean, you know, it, it's it's not just people who, who who voted against Trump. I mean, I one of the things that we talk we, we really grappled with a lot in this book is. Is, is the fact that um, you know a lot of people voted for Trump because they thought that by throwing a brick into the Beltway glass that that was their chance to get power. Um, now, unfortunately, and that's what they have jobs um, too. So yeah. Well, yeah, and, and, and unfortunately, it's just that's just not true. They were duped. Um, right. But 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 you know, so, I mean, see, let, let me let me. That's the bad. The bad news is that you can easily be duped with that. But the good news, and I think one of the, the core principles that, that Francis and I try and put forth in the book, is that ultimately um, we're not 
you know, this is this might be a little controversial, but we're not a divided people. Um, on a vast number of issues, certainly with exceptions, certainly, I'm, I'm not going to deny that, but on some very core issues, we have broad-based agreements on the fact that, you know, 85% of Americans want to fundamentally uh, reform our, the way we fund our elections. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a supermajority want action on climate change. Uh, you know, and a, a 90% want background checks on gun purposes. Um, right. The list goes on and on. Um, you know, and and it's funny. There's there's one study that we 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 cite in the book that showed that it's like polling. I don't know, like 50 different countries, or you know, I don't. I, I forget exactly what it is, but about what the kind of the, the majority of people's biggest concern uh, is, and that most countries, I believe, it's it, it's some sort of instability or terrorism or or or, or some sort of um, I forget exactly. Maybe it's immigration. Um, I think it's terrorism. So. Um, but in the United States, um, it's, it's income quality. Um, and you know that that, that it's that's mind blowing, right? I mean, you, we we you don't think that there's this kind of uh, of unison, but there is. Um, and giving voice to the fact that people agree, whether they voted for Trump or or Clinton, Sanders, Ted Cruz, whatever, um, there's agreement. And that's again what kind of gives me hope um, that you know not only is is there a movement already uh, working on these things, but that that movement will, will continue to grow. Um, and it's only a matter of time until until we win. I mean, at some point, it does become unsustainable. I mean, there's no way that that. <laughs> This this level of inequality is it, it, it's just not. I mean, well, yeah, no, we a, a few more hurricanes, um, you know, that aren't expected uh, will eventually get people to, to to vote people out of office or vote people into office that that believe in climate change. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah, this is. I I just. The the news is so offensive now. The United States news, the Trump news, I should say. Uh, it feels like a machine gun going off in my head. Each thing that he does, and yeah. it's so. I've never felt such despair. Watching the my, I just the whole atmosphere of where we are as a country is so upsetting and I'm trying to convert that energy into positivity and hope. Uh, it's just, it's, it's really difficult to keep a chin up when you get the bullet to the head every second. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah. It's really difficult. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's kind of this little bit of like, um, it's almost like a catch point too, right? Because um, you want to turn off the news. But yes, but you need to know. Be, exactly. Uh, but if you know, then you get hopeless, and then you want to trump. Right. right. So it's just kind of, there's, there's, there's no good choice. I mean, the only no. choice is to, to stay informed. Um, but, you know, listen, 
you know, I, I go through my bouts of, of hopelessness. And, um, but but, but what, what I will say is this. We're almost reaching Trump's 100-day mark. And so thanks to the mass citizen movement already in the works, whether through Indivisible or, or Meetup.com, which for the first time got political, really, and, um, and has a meetup to resist and giving people an opportunity to meet up um, and, you know, move on and other things. The president has not I – mean, the president and, and the, the majorities in the House and Senate, they have not really done anything that – they haven't had a single piece of landmark uh, legislation passed. Um, yeah. You know, yes. But they have deregulated, and they have they have gotten Gorsuch in. But the deregulation so, is just it's mind bending. Yes, I mean, look, don't don't get me wrong. Like bad things are definitely happening, right? But on November 9th, if, again, if you would have told me that at this point this is all they would have gotten, I yeah, would have I agree. Said, I would have said, let's go, let's 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 keep fighting. Because right. at this point, I thought, I thought that I thought we, I would have already been kicked off my health care plan. I thought that the national parks would have been privatized, uh, that Dodd-Frank would have been repealed, that, you know, that we would have just totally opened up the entire United States to offshore drilling. But none of that has happened yet. Um, so clearly we're doing something right. And, and, you know, that is in and of itself you know, a very cautious sign of hope. Things can change. Yeah, as, uh, but, but if people keep fighting, then it's not over. <laughs> no, yeah. It's not, it's not. A real quick um, digression to, to something you were saying about polling and um, that sort of thing. And again, I'd, I'd spent a lot of my life doing this. Uh, in 79 or 80, um, I was with um, a company and, and we had a seven state poll. Um, it was Western states like Montana and Colorado and Arizona. And uh, half the sample we asked, are you for or against the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment? Mm-hmm. The other half we asked the sample, we just read the Equal Rights Amendment and didn't tell them that was what it was. Are you for this statement? Do you agree with this statement? When we when we asked them if they were for or against the Equal Rights Amendment, the Equal Rights Amendment went down three to one against. When we just read them uh, what the Equal Rights Amendment was, it was 50-50. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I mean, I mean, I mean, talk. I mean, it's, it's right. It's the same thing with with uh, with Obama. Well, kind of. It's similar, but I mean, the way in which you phrase a question, the way in which you explain to people things is. Is it changes people's opinion? I mean, this is the thing. Even when Obama Obamacare was the most unpopular, if you just ask people, do you do you like the fact that you know you can stay on your parents' plan until 26? Do you like that you can't you can still get health care even if you have a pre-existing condition? I mean, overall, I mean, what the stats show is that those individuals' provisions, if you ask them directly and explain them, people were super majorities supported it. But if you ask Obamacare. They said, no, it's awful. And then, of course, the, and then you get into the, the ridiculousness of uh, a majority of Americans probably approve of the Affordable Care Act, but, you know, majority of Republicans hate it, right? Like, I don't know the exact spread, but it, I remember seeing similar things to that. That it, it's, I mean, it's 
talk about, you know, this is what you were talking about in the beginning of our call about, about spin. I mean, this is probably the existential question for, for those who care about democracy. Um, how do you deal with the question of, of spin framing and, and verbal manipulation? And, yeah, how do you keep it objective, right? And I'm not, I, I, I don't feign to have an answer to that, but it, it's something that I'll tell, you, I'll tell you one thing, that I don't think that as a nation we've had a good enough conversation about that. Um, and maybe that's a good place to start um, because I, right. I don't, I don't know who has the correct answer, but we got to figure that one out. Yeah, um, yeah. How we talk to each other and how we communicate—it's really, really important. And you know, it's 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 certainly my interest and it's my bag, but um, uh, it 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 does affect uh, why we're still split. You know, uh, because we do use invectives. We do use, a, in a, you know, one side uses Obama as a positive thing and the other side uses as as an invective. And, um, you know, instead of just talking about, you know, the real true elements as opposed to, you know, getting involved with, you know, who, who wrote this or who said this. And it, yeah. it's not easy, you know. Well, we got about 11 minutes left. It, are the, you know, when you were invited to do this, were there things that you wanted to make sure that you shared with us uh, about the book or about your interests or, um, you know, how you want to inspire people? I mean, you know, many answers to that question, I suppose. But, I mean, you know, if anyone's listening who who has – engaged in any bit of activism uh, in, in the past five months, keep it up. I mean, really. I mean, this is the only thing that can prevent, you know, bad things from happening and, and for us to actually move towards a more representative democracy in which every voice is heard. Um, I mean, I, I, I just can't emphasize enough just how important it is every time you call your representative and, and, and go to a protest and things like that. And, and, and it may seem so menial, but, you know, when you add up everyone doing that individual action, it does matter. And I think that's the hardest thing to understand. Um, but, you know, in terms of the thing that I, I, I really want to say is just that, you know, as, as bad as things are, you have to be hopeful. Um, and, and there are ways to plug in. Um, you know, I mean, I'm really excited about the March on Harris. I'm really excited. Um, yeah. I'm, 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 through, I'm through the moon uh, that, that people and I had nothing, you know, no one from Democracy Spring, the organizers, had anything to do with it. Um, it was it was someone who attended the march and got arrested, and a great guy, and, and a group of people in Pennsylvania who, you know, just did it. Um, That's great. And, and it, 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 it's inspiring to me uh, because it means that when you, that people care. Um, and, you know, when you lose all the time, it's hard to, you know, remember that. But, but it, it's true. And, you know, one, one of the things just on this topic that um, I, I recently got really interested in, actually, is I was taking it. So we finished the, the book. I mean, we're still in, we're going to be in copy editing now. So we're still, you know, doing tweaks here and there. But when it, I took a week vacation after we handed in the final manuscript, and you know, I was just um, just reading. Um, I was I was just reading some some ancient Greek philosophers just to I don't know 
just to just to see what they said and if there's any wisdom there. And I don't usually love Aristotle, but you know, as I was reading this, I was reading this kind of book about Aristotle, and apparently, you know, one of the things that he was really into was dividing one's time up three ways: uh, doing work, uh, relaxing, and leisure. But leisure for him wasn't the same as relaxing. It meant doing something for one's virtue and something something beyond oneself in that way. Um, and I don't think he was necessarily thinking that, you know, you know, that was more I mean, just many things wrong with Aristotle that, you know, it was a very classic, you know, you know, it's only for a few privileged individuals that they, you have to have slaves in order to have leisure time for the you know, the high class. Um, but that idea of of kind of differentiating leisure or, or, or relaxation with leisure and leisure being political activity or something more than oneself uh, was really, I'm still trying to really, I'm still trying to turning it over to my head, but what, what would happen if we, we reconceive of politics, not as something you do in your free time, but as something you do as kind of a third category of your time. You have work, you have relaxing time, but you're, you're encouraged to do something meaningful as well that doesn't count towards leisure. Um, and I don't know what I think about that, but it's something that I, I, I felt compelled to share with somebody. I haven't, I haven't actually shared this with anybody yet. Um, and I, I'm, really, I'm really thr- thrilled with that idea because it's, it, 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 it reconceives of something as, well, oh, I spent my Saturday doing this, you know, therefore I fulfilled my quota. No. Like, it's something that should be expected of you as a citizen to, you know, or at least I mean, within reason, right? I mean, I'm not trying to suggest that anyone can do this. I mean, there are class, race, and many other barriers that prevent people from having that time. And I, I recognize that. That's the society we live. But for those of us who do have downtime, um, I think reconceiving of, of an hour or, or three hours a week or whatever to to engage in what a lot of people are calling, you know, the resistance is is really a fascinating reconception or reconceiving of what it means to be a citizen. Um, because then that brings back this notion of, of the public. And that means, you're, you know, part of your time should be devoted to the public. Um, right. And again, this has nothing to do with my book, and I, I really should be taking the time to talk about my book, but I feel like we've talked a lot about it. Um, and I have to share that because I, I just think that... I, I, uh, I think it's really, really zen. Um, you know, I mean, because you use the word virtue, and that's one of my favorite words. And, uh, you know, the idea of kind of cleaning your, your mental palate uh, by looking at your priorities... And spending, like you say, one to five hours, one to three hours a week trying to um, to connect with the universe and connect uh, with your virtue a little bit deeper um, instead of just making it work. It, you know, it, 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 it's just finding out really who you want to be. And if, and I if you can agree. Yeah, if you can make, you know, if you can inspire that four-year-old kid that inner child always wants to learn and, and why make it ooh politics? It's just ooh virtue. It's, it's entirely different and it's not ooh anymore. It's, it's, it's healthy. 
Yeah, well, I think that's a really, really good way of putting it. That I mean, that, I mean, that is kind of what uh, you know a lot of the, you know some of the, you know Aristotle talked about. I mean, I have to kind of dig deeper. I mean, it's I just did a very cursory dive of this, but. Um, well, I, it, I'm kind true. of an ancient Greek philosopher myself, so. <laughs> <laughs> I like to true. consider myself one also. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, I just I think it, it's it's a really interesting way of, of finding those connections back to society um, in, in a society that is so increasingly individualistic. Um, and I think reconceiving of that small portion of your time uh, to reconnect and, and do something meaningful for the good of society as, as not something out of your, your like, uh, free time or relaxing time, but something that you're kind of morally obligated to do, um, you know, the best of your ability, I think is, is a really interesting way to, to think about it. And it's what I'm, it's what I'm resonating with right now. And so I thought I'd share it. And, um, no, it's great. Um, it is great. And I'm Thank glad you. you did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you got, you got to find some way to, to make it through these dark days. I'll tell you that much. Well, I was, I was uh, recently uh, bestowed the honor of making, made myself an honorary Greek by the leader of the direct democracy party, uh, Stavros Vitalis. So I'm going to extend it to you since I am Greek. You are now on the <laughs> Greek, Adam. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, she didn't have to bestow it on me because both of my grandfathers were Greek. So <laughs> that's right. He's already in there. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's. I, I really, I mean. There's something to be said about that feeling of taking ownership. You know, it's just, I mean, that, that, that's one of the, the, the things we talk about in the book. And it's, it's, you know, that moment where you take ownership is just, it's, it's, it's meaningful. Um, and I might, yeah, it's empowering. as a very quick thing, one of the other kind of small facts I can pull out from the book is I think it's, I think 70% of Americans report loneliness. Um, and, and for me, that is the most ringing endorsement of the need for a, a movement and the engagement in politics. Um, yes. Because it's in, it's in politics and movement building and activism and social justice where, where you find people that you would have never met and you, you develop bonds and you create community and you learn together. Um, yes. And so, so for me, if 70% of Americans uh, are lonely, um, then, then the time is 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 ripe for for exactly what we're. We talking have a about. minute left for democracy. We have one minute yeah. left. Well, Dave so, Mason had an album called "Alone Together," so um, that thought has been around for a long time. So I like it. I like it. Well, th- thank you both yeah. for having me on. This was this was delightful. This was a wonderful conversation. It was really yeah, and I hope we're going to do it. We'll do it again very soon. Excellent. Yeah, and I'll I'll get your vitals and and I'll knock on your door some way in the in the next few days. But uh, uh, it, you know, as far as social media or whatever, and uh, excellent. Um, it, it's uh, you know, it, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, some of these radio shows have been pulling teeth, and this certainly wasn't one of those shows. So, yeah, well, um, very happy here. And that. just just so you know, just because we didn't get 
call-ins doesn't mean that people aren't listening. Some of these shows, you know, have up to 80 people, uh, which sounds small, but... Um, no, no, it's much uh, more than that, Chris. Much more than okay, that. Okay, well, then, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, because we do, you know, tell people about it, and, and so, and they are preserved, and and so people listen afterwards, and I'm sure there are people listening now, but um, but I'll oh. shut up and let you sign off. <laughs> Well, thank you again, everybody, uh, for a great show. And uh, stay tuned and follow uh, us on Blog Talk Radio to be notified of our next show. We never know when it's going to be because we live crazy lives. Thank you and have a great night. Good night, guys. Good night. Thank you so much, guys. That was that was so much fun. That made my night. It was, it was really great. Me too. I'm glad thank to you. hear that. Bye-bye. Thank you. Get some sleep. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye.